Good morning. Welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. And getting up early to enjoy the summer rain today is Ros Taylor. Hi, Ros. How are you doing? Hello. Pretty well, thank you. Jolly good. Um, so we had an unexpected weekend of entertainment from Matt Hancock, quitting the health secretary job at last after being photographed in what the tabloids like to call a steamy clinch. With his advisor, Steamy Clinches, yes, with Gina Colodangelo. Trist, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I was trying to find a way of using uh, Trist and Trace somewhere, but it didn't really seem to work. Hancock, classy to the last, did it in the middle of the Wales game, which is really annoying. Lots of our listeners have been very keen to point out that the affair is not the story. So many other things are the story, and the fact that a minister has had an affair is, is not the story. Key part of it is... How did CCTV from inside the minister's office end up in the hands of the Sun? Um, a, a DHSC employee is supposedly the source for it. it the Roots is via an anti-lockdown activist, supposedly. How, how do you expect this aspect of it to develop this week? Clearly, a staffer had to be involved, uh, unless a Sun journalist is able to go in and put cameras in the Department of Health, which I somewhat doubt. I think that would be a bit hard to do. Mm. So in some ways, the question is who leaked the footage and why, although that question is ultimately not not very meaningful for Hancock's career now. But if they were paid, that does put a slightly different spin on it. If they were bribed even more, that puts another spin on it. If, however, they were just someone who was uh, fed up with lockdown regulations, that does make the sun look rather more perhaps noble than it might otherwise do. We can't know at this stage how they got hold of the footage GB News has put out a Freedom of Information request asking how it was leaked. But I've sensed the world has moved on a bit now and people are not terribly interested now that they have had the salacious pleasure of watching Hancock in his clinch (laughs) with his lover. I think that the public is now ready to move on. But should it? Because I mean, if, if it's if it's that easy to get CCTV footage for something so trivial as uh, Matt Hancock with his school disco wandering party hands, it's it's as easy to get that footage for, on something serious. You know, it could quite easily be the Russians or the Chinese or numerous other enemies of the British government and the, the British state able to uh, get video of, of ministers at work. I mean, are all ministers videoed like this constantly in some kind of Nixonian permanent information gathering scenario? Quite possibly. Uh, There's a lot of CCTV in public buildings. There is arguably a public interest in that CCTV going in there if you're not worried about privacy consequences because it's public money being spent and people are are severe. I mean, GB News seemed charmingly unaware, to be honest, to the extent to which CCTV CCTV is used in this country. It's used outdoors, particularly in sort of semi- public private spaces of which there are increasing number which are patrolled not by the police but by the employees of the people the property owners it is everywhere and most of the time it, of course it goes completely ignored but if you choose to seek out footage of a particular person and this is of course very useful to the police when something bad does happen this uh, this footage can be drawn upon and searched using increasingly sophisticated methods um, of course, if uh, one of one of the ways in which CCTV, CCTV has become less useful in the last couple year, fifteen months, is because people wear masks far more often in public places. They don't indoors, and this worked in the sun's favour. It would have been okay for Matt Hancock if he and Gina had been wearing masks, wouldn't it? Arguably, he would still have been breaching the social distancing regulations because <laughs> uh, wearing a mask does not make a difference. To that. 
Yeah, we're not, we, we don't do kink shaming on this this uh, podcast. Um, the, the other aspect of it is um, that it's emerged uh, a story in the Guardian that Hancock was using a private email address, and hence that there are no records of the many conversations he has doubtless been having about contracts uh, about contracts and supplies um, for the health service. Is this going to develop into a Hillary Clinton but his email scenario, or, or does the fact that he's gone just draw a draw a line? The matter is closed under these actually very important issues. I don't think it draws a line because there are enough people interested now, for example, the Good Law Project, in pursuing these contracts. It does make it much more difficult, though, to obtain the information about them via freedom of information. And, of course, a lot goes on on WhatsApp as well. It's not just private email addresses. Uh, WhatsApp is very difficult to obtain information about. And we've seen in recent weeks Dominic Cummings leaking screenshots of his WhatsApp give a picture of what was going on in in government when he was there. This is not going to go away because it is part of a pattern of wider graft, cronyism, corruption in government, which is gradually being exposed. Um, Another aspect of that is the fact that Hancock was giving £15,000 of public money uh, to his girlfriend, Gina Colodangelo's non-executive director of the Department of Health and Social Care, and as it says in The Guardian, do you get your mistress to mark your homework? This, to me, was always the most objectionable part of it. I mean, I couldn't care less if he's um, ruining his marriage. Uh, that, that's that's not my business. The fact that she is on the payroll of the NHS, or was until a couple of days ago, and the question of whether he put her on there in order to have her in close proximity so that they could have trysts, or whether that happened afterwards is also important. It's worth pointing out that, however egregious that is, Boris Johnson could not sack him for doing that because it is almost precisely what he did with his lover when he was mayor of London. He, uh, You may recall mm-hmm. the uh, lovely lady who he was uh, seeing and giving was giving him technology lessons, IT lessons during his <laughs> mayoralty and uh, in her private flat. And he managed to um, funnel public money her way and took her on um, a couple of trips, I think, abroad, although they were a bit hacked off that they couldn't share a bedroom in um, one hotel. And it's precisely what Johnson has already done. So although Johnson is as a hypocrite and manages to get away with the most extraordinary hypocrisy, it would have been impossible nonetheless for him to sack Hancock because of that. So it suits Johnson now for the narrative that, oh, Hancock is doing the right thing for his family to emerge, which of course is complete bollocks because as far as I can tell, Hancock appears to have left his wife um, and walked out on his kids, waking, I believe, one of them up according to the Sunday Times uh, in the evening to tell them that uh, he was going. So there is no more family life to preserve and he certainly hasn't put his wife first at this point or any point. I think what we can draw from that is giving him technology lessons is the new Ugandan discussions, perhaps. We should put a pin in that one for, for the future. The re- just you know one last few things on Hancock before we move on. The rage in the country about this was Bernard Castlegrade, wasn't it? People who couldn't see dying par- uh, parents and partners appearing in in newspapers and appearing in Vox Pops. Just the sheer uh, rage-inducing spectacle of somebody who has told you to do one thing made it impossible for you to see your loved ones doing the precise opposite. What, what, what does the fact that it was if effectively it was that disgust and that rage and those letters going to Conservative MPs and so on 
not Johnson's own decision. Say about you know Johnson's reading of the country. I mean, you're, you're right. He couldn't exactly sack him for giving fifteen thousand pounds of money to uh, uh, to a lover when Johnson himself has done exactly that thing himself. But there comes a point where the prime minister um, has to sort of be seen to at least pretend to have some moral standards if the country is that enraged. Well, I don't think Boris Johnson needs to pretend to be to, to have some moral standards because. He it is quite clear that in in many areas he doesn't have them, and quite a lot of voters are happy with that because that is part of the Johnson personality. I think they expect more of Matt Hancock, or they expected more of Matt Hancock. They didn't think he was quite the same level as Boris Johnson. This is the problem. I mean, also Britain has Britain has not helped itself in this regard. I mean, back in I think March 2020, Matt Hancock told people who were in a kind of bit of a relationship, but not living together, that they had to decide whether they should move in together and go all in, or they should just stop seeing each other. That looks very, very bad now. But this whole thing has arisen because Britain has policed individual human contact far more closely, far more intimately than other comparable countries. And other countries have had strict lockdowns, but they have not had the same kind of bans, literally, on having sex with someone whom you're not living with that Britain has had. We chose to do that. And then when you choose to do that, you are naturally going to create outrage among people who then see the health secretary doing the thing that they were ordered not to do. And when it's about sex, it's just all the more powerful and comprehensible. Sajid Javid is the new health secretary. This is the guy who's bounced out of government for refusing to accept Cummings's proposed setup of joint advisors in the Treasury between the Treasury and number 10, aka basically number 10 snoopers on the Treasury. What does Johnson's decision not to promote somebody already in cabinet say about talent in the cabinet? Well, there is no talent in the cabinet. I mean, (laughs) there just isn't really anybody up to it. Um, I mean, you can't move Sunak because um, he's the chancellor and he hasn't been in that job all that long anyway. It would be, you know, that toxic. It'd be a demotion, yeah. Pretty Patel as health secretary, I'm not seeing it. I think <laughs> if she has a natural natural home, I think it's the home, it's the home office. Yeah, you can't um, lock up COVID. You can't put COVID in a camp. <laughs> you, can't, you can't make it go, go abroad and be assessed somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, all the good, decent people like, you know, well, people like Jeremy Hunt, who are more competent, you know, people like Rory Stewart, all the others who were still in the Theresa May government have been removed. And you can see that Johnson is not ready to bring those back because he didn't bring back Jeremy Hunt, who would have been the obvious candidate for this job, having done it for a long time before and having had you know, being having some, I think, credibility with the public. But he couldn't bring himself to do that because because Hunt ran against him in the Tory leadership contest and he doesn't trust him. There simply isn't enough talent to go around. What you've got to do is bring in someone whom you originally hired but had to get rid of because your aide, Dominic Cummings, didn't like him. And I believe that Carrie Johnson... Simmons, as was until a few weeks ago, is also a big friend of Savage Javid, which has not at all hindered his chances. You do wonder if this is the final erasure of Cummingsism, don't you? Classic Dom is tweeting that he was a useless chancellor and a bog-standard minister who would be awful for the NHS. So, I mean, there's probably a rage being emitted from whatever underground bunker Dominic Cummings is in at the moment. But Javid's got a pretty full entry, hasn't he? He's got he's got to make the decision on unlocking. He's got to complete the vaccine rollout. He's got to decide whether Dido Hardy becomes NHS chief executive. 
what sort of health minister do you think he's going to be? I mean, he was Captain Austerity during the Cameron government, wasn't he? Yeah, he's got a massive, massive job. I mean, it actually starts today because they're deciding today whether we can unlock earlier on the 5th of July rather than 19th, which that one is for the birds. It's not going to happen. But the signals that Javid has been putting out to Tory backbenchers about wanting to return to normal life as soon as possible are quite telling about his approach. Nevertheless, he's not in the... Uh, he's not in the treasury anymore. He will have a lot of advisors warning him. And he's also got a more cautious Boris Johnson, who is going to make the ultimate decisions. It will do him no harm, however, to align himself with people who want to open up earlier rather than later, but present the narrative that the you know science and data unfortunately forces him to wait until the 19th. He also has a lot even more than that going on. I mean, there's big restructuring the NHS in, in course. Of course, yeah, he's got to decide whether to appoint Dido Harding. Hopefully not. Um, hopefully somebody more competent. And there's social care, mm. which is huge and keeps being kicked down the road. No decisions made. And now that we have a new health secretary, it may be even longer before we get a firm plan on how to pay for social care, how to put that into place. You edit the LSE uh, COVID blog. Infection rates are rising drastically. On June the 27th, there were 14,876 a day, up 5,592 on the week. Um, deaths are still low. There were there were 11 deaths on the on June the 27th. But with those infections rising so drastically and clearly connected to the Delta variant, are we now basically in the third stroke, fourth wave, whether we like it or not? Oh, yeah, totally. We are in the third stroke, fourth wave. There's a big differences with this wave, clearly. The most mm. vulnerable people and the eldest are, are vac- vaccinated. So what we're seeing is large numbers of infections in younger people, specifically under 30s in particular, who've not had the jab, only had one jab, which doesn't give them much protection, and school kids who have not had the jab at all. And there are no plans whatsoever so far to give them the jab. This is going to be a massive problem for the government, which it should see coming, should have seen coming down the tracks weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Schools are still open, rightly so, but you have more and more of them closing bubbles and hundreds and thousands, and soon it will be millions of kids off school self-isolating. This is really, really hard decision to do. You can't vaccinate them immediately, but you can put in train a process that starts vaccinating them now so that they have greater protection by September. Because otherwise, we are going to have exactly the same problem in September if these kids are unvaccinated. COVID is endemic and it is spreading. You either do, you either vaccinate them or you say kids no longer have to self-isolate if they've been in contact with somebody who has COVID because there is no other way to keep schools going and it is a tough decision uh, for the government and they don't want to make it you can you almost visibly see them avoiding it but it is not just bad for their schooling repeatedly 10 days of being effectively locked in your house is frankly cruel and we shouldn't be doing it to kids at this stage in the pandemic this is something which I'm. Uh, you won't be surprised I hear, feel very strongly about. We've already gone through enough. Now that we have protected the most vulnerable, we either decide that this is a real problem and we put everyone back into lockdown, which we're not going to do, or we stop self-isolation or we vaccinate kids. But we can't have it always because they're going to build up herd immunity somehow. And the question is how slowly 
if we impose self-isolation or how fast that happens. Really very difficult decision for the government because they don't want, they know that there will be a lot of opposition to vaccinating under 18s from the anti-vaxxers. One sort of sidebar on education this week, uh, Sir Kevin Collins is up before the Education Committee. Uh, Sir Kevin Collins, who resigned in uh, in a rage at the government's measly provisions for uh, restarting and remaking education. So there should be some popcorn there, I would have thought. Oh, yeah. He will have some very harsh things to say about the government I uh, catch-up plan, at least I hope so. Because despite that brief outlay, outrage when he resigned, the amount is still as low as it was. There hasn't been any uptick in the amount. And that amount, as I think The Economist put it this week, it's only slightly more than the government spent on Eat Out to Help Out. <laughs> you know, wow. this is, it is literally 10 times less than comparable countries are putting into helping kids catch up. A quick roundup of other stuff to look out for this week. Um, the battle and spend by elections becoming increasingly toxic. George Galloway's spoiler campaign against Labour has been, uh, shall we say, attracting uh, a nasty tone of street harassment. This is, what is it? It's the last week of campaigning, isn't it? We should, we should imagine this is not going to be a pretty sight. No, I don't expect it to be a pretty sight. I, I don't think anything, anybody's going to come out of this very happy. It's cl- unclear to me what the, uh, what the result is going to be. Batley and Spen seems a different kind of place in many ways from Hartlepool. And of course, George Galloway has been whipping up a lot of anti-Labour feeling. I understand that there were leaflets circulating at the weekend, which said that Labour was happy to take the knee and trying to attack the Labour Party's perceived wokeness. So all kinds of attacks on it there. And I think turnout will be very, very important in this contest as well. I don't expect it to be very high, but and that can have unexpected effects. I think one thing we can predict with absolute confidence is that whatever the result is, it will prove what every commentator's thought all along was definitely true. I think that's Absolutely. something to put a pin in that one. And you're keen to raise the, the issue of the... Uh, protests over the weekend, both the preemptive arrests of Extinction Rebellion protesters and there were further anti-mask COVID sceptic demonstrations. Also, the return of raves. What's going on there? Are you you seeing things brewing for more of a restive public sphere, more more demonstrations and more of a a hardline approach from police to to preempt them? Yeah, you are seeing a hardline approach from police. The police stepped in and arrested 12 people before, well before any protests had actually started. They were working on um, art, installa- art installations and things involving bamboo structures for demonstrations in London. And the police basically swooped and not just confiscated that stuff, which, you know, by itself, perhaps you could see a justification for, but arrested the people doing it as well. This is, unfortunately, I fear, a sign of things to come with the new law that's planned that will crack down on disruptive protests and will let the police and the Home Secretary decide what constitutes disruptive. It really is depressing to see that happening before it even goes into into legislation. And also the other thing is the wide range of protests you've got. You, I mean, you had protested on, on Saturday and Sunday that really had nothing in common were saying quite different things. You've got the anti-lockdown sceptics, you've got XR, you've got kill the bill against the anti-protest bill itself, yeah. you've got anti-austerity protests. There was a lot going on. I thought he got surprisingly little public co- coverage considering the uh, numbers of people out there. 
And of course, you've also got raves going on. This is exactly mm. what happened in the 1990s when people felt oppressed by the by policing and went out and held illegal raves in open spaces. This has been happening in France as well. There was one very, very big one in uh, near Rouen, I think, recently, and it's starting to happen here as well. I think young people being last to be vaxxed and after the debacle of universities last autumn, having to pay for the same amount of money for a greatly diminished kind of education, feel especially ignored by government at the moment. Mm. And they it's completely understandable, in my view, that you'd be yearning for a big communal experience after the, the, the what many of them have been through in the past 15 months. A couple more things before we wrap up. Um, the extreme heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. Portland has two consecutive all-time record temperatures of 42 degrees Celsius and then 44 degrees Celsius. This is Portland, Oregon. This is not a uh, you know a, a sunbelt, sunbaked part of the United States. This is um, we've kind of run out of wake-up calls. We'll never run out of wake-up calls. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, last, last year it was the forest fires in Australia and there were also fires in California. And this year it's, it's this enormous heat wave, which they are describing in um, the US as a one in 10,000 year event. That's how, that's how hot it is. Once it starts getting above, above the forties, it really is. And I, I think it will concentrate minds on mm. what the climate emergency is doing. I think it will potentially, you know, it will give a give a lot of ammunition to organisations like XR, who are being more and more are getting louder and louder with their warnings about what is going to happen. And as restrictions on public gathering, you know, in the US anyway, start to ease, I think it will. Uh, th- this is another trend that you will see during the summer of people going out there and making the point the only way they know how. Finally, the most important thing of the lot, of course, much more important than the planet burning to a cinder. Um, England are playing Germany at five o'clock on Tuesday. But it's been a strange absence of jingoism. No act on surrender front pages. Even Boris Johnson's been quiet about this. Will you? Will you be watching Ros in your uh, in your Cross of Saint George uh, t-shirt? Yeah, I, I, I will be watching actually, um, because we're an England versus Germany house, really. Because you know, my husband is half German, so mm. so we have we have an interest on both sides. Uh, in this match, so it is one of the few things ones I will I will probably watch. Also, I understand even from my ignorance of football that the Germans are quite beautiful football players, and yeah, you know, I, I, I can appreciate the aesthetics of football as anybody <laughs> as anybody else. I I don't really understand it in any meaningful sense, but yeah, it, it's it's good to have seen the lack of jingoism so far. I worry that if the Germans, you know, either way, if the Germans win then there's kind of boiling resentment. And if they lose, there's jingoism. It's almost like you, you yeah. have one or the other. I hope it won't turn out into a, you know, g- turn into a Germans want to keep us out of Europe thing. Because of course, Angela Merkel's remarks last week saying that she thought that all EU countries ought to keep out British people because of the de- Delta variant spreading and the risk that we posed did not go down very well. It wasn't universally endorsed in the EU. So Spain and Greece, I think, are still are still very much hoping to welcome lots of British tourists. But it wasn't the kind of thing that will go down well with people hoping to have a holiday on the continent. No. Well, we'll know in 48 hours whether it's going to be, uh, you know, the waving across the St. George or more cars on fire in Trafalgar Square. You know, traditional. 
every every two, every two to four years it happens. Roz, thanks for getting up early for start your week. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening. You can, of course, back us on Patreon and help us in our valuable work. Also, if you back us on Patreon, you'll get the shows early, but you'll also get a discount on tickets for our Bunker versus Oh God, What Now live show, which is finally, finally, finally happening on Tuesday, August the 10th at the Leicester Square Theatre. We are terribly excited about this. It's been rescheduled too many times, but it's going to be a great night with many of the regulars appearing, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. So thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.